I invite you to bow with me once more. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is timeless, that it has truth for all ages, including our own today. I pray, Lord, that as we enter your word, that you will speak to us by it, through your spirit, give us understanding. I pray that you would also, by your spirit, speak to each one of our hearts uh, a specific word that you would have for each one of us, where to apply this word this morning. And I pray, Lord, for me, that you will give me... uh, the power to speak this word boldly and clearly as you would have me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There's a story told of a Jewish rabbi who was once at odds with his congregation. And so a meeting was held with the rabbi and the elders of his board to discuss and resolve this particular issue. However, into the meeting, it didn't take very long for the rabbi to soon discover that none of the ten elders on the board agreed with him. And so finally, the chairman of the elders board announced, let us now vote and let the majority rule. So after the votes were tallied, the president said, Rabbi, you are outvoted ten to one. We have the majority. The rabbi then rose to his feet and said quite sternly, so you think you are right and I am wrong simply because of a vote? I will call on the Holy One of Israel to give us a sign that the Lord is indeed on my side and that I am right. Immediately upon his pronouncement, there was a brilliant flash of light within the boardroom, followed by a deafening thunderclap. Their mahogany board table split in two, and the elders were hurled backwards to the floor. And there the rabbi stood, arms outstretched, triumphant. Well, the chairman slowly crawled out from the rubble. He got back to his feet. His hair was singed. His glasses were hanging off the side of one ear. And his, and his clothing was smoldering and smoking. And finally he said, All right, all right. So the vote now stands ten to two. But we still have the majority. The vote stands. This is a very similar scenario to what we see in today's scripture from Numbers 13. If you turn there with me this morning, we'll continue in part 19 of our series in Exodus, The Way Out, and we arrive here at a crucial juncture in Israel's history. Here on the banks of the Jordan River, the fate of the entire nation was to be determined in one incident. Not only the fate of that generation of people, but this moment in history would come to define Israel as a nation from this point moving forward. For here at long last, the 400 years of slavery in Egypt is in the rearview mirror. It's behind them. And here the long talked about, the long promised land flowing with milk and honey It's not just a story anymore, it's staring them in the face, they can look out, they can see it, and all they have to do is now lay hold of it. It's right in front of them. On top of that, we read that God has already promised to give them the land. So all they need to do is believe God, and to do, and to take what he has already promised to them. And after everything they've endured, after everything we've journeyed along with through the exodus, the mighty hand of God, the crossing of the Red Sea, they've seen it all, they've experienced God's mighty power. What could possibly go wrong 
at this juncture? Well, let's turn to the text and see. Numbers 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Send men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. And so 12 spies are commissioned and sent out. They spend 40 days exploring the land, and then they return to give the report. But though all 12 spies will have seen the same things, the report is far from unanimous. For only a minority of the spies, two of them in fact, give a positive report filled with faith in God's promise that he was going to give them the land and that they should move ahead accordingly. But the majority, the other ten spies, they gave an evil report filled with fear that if they tried to go in and take the land, they would be crushed like bugs. And so as we enter into the story, the question for us to consider today is this. What influences our decisions the most? What factors do we consider when we're making a decision, especially, of course, decisions pertaining to faith and obedience to God's commands? What influences your decisions the most? Is it faith in God's promises, or is it fear of the obstacles in front of you? Now, of course, when we consider that question, we all want our decisions to be most influenced by our faith in God's promises, not by our fears. But I think if we're honest, we must admit that there are times where, just like Israel, where our fears overrule our faith, where our fear of the obstacles in front of us that we can see are a bigger factor in our decisions than our faith in God's promises. And so the question we ask is, how can we then grow our faith? How can we grow to a point where we put the promises of God as first and foremost in every decision we make more than the obstacles that we can see? How can we be more like the two spies, Joshua and Caleb, who lived by faith, and less like the ten who are ruled by fear? So as we consider these questions this morning, there are three lessons I'd like us to consider. And lesson number one is this. Faith begins with the right vision. Faith begins with the right vision. Vision works in two distinctly opposite ways. Either what we see influences our level of faith, or our level of faith influences what we see. So let me explain that. If we have faith to believe that God is all-powerful... If we have faith to believe that he is always with us, if we have faith to believe that he is always standing ready to help us, then our obstacles will look small. But if we believe that God is weak or distant or uncaring of our situation, then our obstacles will look large, won't they? And so we see this difference in vision in the 12 spies returning to give their reports. Numbers 13.27, we skip ahead in the chapter to verse 27, and there we read. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. And so it begins very positively. It's, It's a unanimous report at this point. They even brought back a large cluster of grapes, pomegranates, and figs as evidence of the land's fertility. They they put it on display, and now the people can taste and sample how good the land truly is. 
starts off great. But from that point on, the report is no longer unanimous. The committee was divided, ten to two, if you will, and the majority begins the rest of the report with the dreaded B word. You know what the dreaded B word is? But. It's in the next verse, verse 28. But the people who live there are powerful. The cities are fortified and large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Now, I don't know about you, but, but for me, and, and possibly you've experienced this as well, have you ever noticed how often that word but is used when discussing plans? You know, we can, we can talk about things and, and look at all the positives of it, and then somewhere in there we say, but what about if this? But what about if that? But what about if this thing fails miserably? And that word can so often be inserted into something good that God is calling us into, and we throw that word in there, and all we can see is how it will fail. And often, this is covered under the smokescreen of being prudent or realistic somehow. Verse 31, the spies continue, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. Sounds being very prudent, realistic, right? They're stronger than us. We shouldn't attack. They'll beat us, certainly. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Now, if I were a psychologist, I would diagnose those men with an inferiority complex. They're giants, and we're just little grasshoppers down here, and they're just going to go... Just like that. You ever squished a grasshopper? Then you got to wipe off your shoe. Right? That's what they're envisioning. They're like, we're going to go in there, and these giants are just going to go... And we're done. We're finished. And then our wives and our kids are going to be taken into captivity and slaves. And it's just, we would have been better off in Egypt. We would have been better off to just die in the wilderness than to be squished like bugs under a giant's shoe. We seemed like grasshoppers. Talk about an inferiority complex. But I, as a preacher, of course, will diagnose them a little bit differently. I diagnose them with a vision problem. A vision problem. Something was wrong with their eyes. Because what did they see? They saw the enemy as giants, first off. They saw themselves as grasshoppers, and they didn't see God at all. But let's stop just for a moment to give those ten spies the benefit of the doubt. Because, I mean, after all, they were simply being realistic. They were being prudent to try to keep the nation out of a fight that they couldn't win. They're trying to keep their wives and their, and their children from becoming slaves. And on top of that, they weren't just exaggerating about them being giants. They are called the sons of Anak, descendants of the Nephilim. And it's very interesting to consider that there were more than likely a few 10-foot-plus warriors living in Canaan, probably more than a few of these 10-foot-plus warriors Consider in the biblical history that Goliath of Gath, 
the, the giant who, of course, David famously slew with a, with a slingshot and then chopped off his head with his own sword. This Goliath of Gath was almost 10 feet tall and he lived almost 400 years after this account in Scripture. So it's reasonable to consider that there would have been more and possibly larger giants than Goliath at this earlier point in history, some 400 years earlier. And so if it came down to a strength versus strength battle, these Israelite spies, they were right to say that, yes, we will get squished like bugs. And so not only did they have this inferiority complex, but they saw giants, real live giants, and this just overwhelmed them. But faith tells us something else. Faith tells us to look in another direction, not at the giants. Faith tells us to look above the giants, to set our eyes on God and his promises. What did God say about this land? God said, I am giving it to you. Giants included. I am giving it to you, and and the giants and all your enemies will be struck down defeated, destroyed before you. That was God's promise. But all they could see was the giants. They had a vision problem. In Burma in the early 19th century, an American missionary named Adoniram Judson, he was lying in a foul, rat-infested prison with 32 pounds of chains shackling his ankles to a bamboo pole. And in that prison, a fellow prisoner who knew of his mission to come and to evangelize the heathen, the people living in the jungles of Burma, he said to him with a sneer, So, Dr. Judson, what about the prospect of converting the heathen? And Dr. Judson's reply was instantaneous. The prospects are just as bright as the promises of God. You see... When God calls us to do something, our base instinct will be to look first at all of the obstacles in front of achieving what God has called us to. But what faith teaches us is to look first and foremost to God and his promises. That's what Adoniram Judson did, and history shows how he did, in fact, convert the heathen. He brought them to Jesus Christ and brought the faith into the jungles of Burma. He looked above his obstacles, above his circumstances of lying in that prison, and he looked to God and his promises. This is what Caleb and Joshua did as well. After seeing that all of the people, yes, the majority it says, all of the people sided with the fear-filled report of the ten spies, they finally speak up to set the record straight. Flip ahead to Numbers 14 and verses 6 to 9. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into the land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Wow, what a powerful speech, right? Like, think of any powerful speech rousing the troops in a movie you've seen. Maybe Braveheart, the famous speech where he rouses the men and the troops. This is one of those speeches. 
It's incredible, the faith, the power, the conviction that Caleb and Joshua had. Even though they saw the same giants, the same things, the same fortifications, the same armies as the other ten spies, they allowed their faith in God and his promises to influence their vision. And from that faith, they make the declaration... Not only will the giants not squish us like bugs, no, it will be the other way around. We will devour them. They will become meal for us. It was George Mueller who said, Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. The other ten spies were looking at the giants through human eyes, human vision. But Joshua and Caleb were looking at the giants through the eyes of faith, believing that God would make victory not only possible, but guaranteed. So how is your vision today? Do you see the giants before you as insurmountable, unbeatable obstacles? Or do you look above the giants to see God? Remember that no giant, no challenge, no obstacle, that God has called us to something beyond that. Not one of them is bigger than God, is it? There is nothing that he cannot overcome. And so remember, faith begins with the right vision. Secondly, faith inspires courage. Faith inspires courage. Following Joshua and Caleb's powerful, rousing speech, I read it and I'm pumped up. I'm like, if I was thinking the other way, I'm like, yes, Joshua and Caleb, you're right. I'm with you 100%. The people are rallied behind them, but what happens? Verse 10. But the whole, there's another but word. (laughs) But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Now, I don't know about you, But of all the ways to die, getting stoned to death just seems one of the more unpleasant ones. I don't know. It's right up there with getting burnt to death or drowned or something like that. But getting stoned to death, it just, this this thought of an angry mob around you, picking up rocks to just take you out. This is now a distinct possibility for both Joshua and Caleb as they stand alongside Moses and Aaron. But notice this courageously, they didn't back down. The whole mob, the whole assembly is against them. Four against everyone. They didn't back down. Why? Why? They had faith that God was going to give them the victory. I think too often as Christians, I think we back down from living out our beliefs and convictions boldly Because we forget that the Lord Jesus has already given us complete victory in him. And so when the majority comes against us, whether that's in our culture, the majority stands against the gospel, against the Lord, and we back down, we shrink back, because look how numerous they are, and we're so few. Look how big they are, and I'm so small. And we back down, we don't live out our faith and convictions boldly in the face of obstacles and pressure. And I think that's because we've forgotten victory is already ours. Romans 8, 37 to 39 says this. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, 
neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you living life constantly being conquered by your fears? Or are you living as more than a conqueror, remembering that God's love for you is already guaranteed through Jesus Christ and his salvation is already assured? It cannot be taken away. Not today, not tomorrow, not for all of eternity to come. So, my friends, if you are in Christ, what can man do to you? If they kill you, if they in fact stone you to death, so what? You'll be in heaven with Jesus, receiving your eternal reward. And if that doesn't infuse you with courage to live boldly for God, then I don't know what will, because that's it, my friends. That's it. Faith inspires courage. Joshua and Caleb were inspired to act courageously because of their faith. Are we doing the same? Thirdly, faith leads to action. Faith leads to action. God has given his people a course of action, very specifically, and he expected them to act on the course that he had laid out for them. Sitting around and doing nothing was not an option. But while God is, of course, incredibly patient, he would not wait on them forever. And so now the Israelites, they have finally stretched God's patience to the breaking point. And now in outright rebellion against their leadership. They're about to stone Moses and Aaron to death to raise up their own leader to lead them back to Egypt. Let's go back to slavery. Can you imagine? But that's exactly what they're talking about doing here. And God says, enough. Enough. His glory cloud comes down. Numbers 14, verse 10. His glory cloud comes down. He appears to the people in a cloud of light. And he says to Moses... Stand back. I'm going to annihilate the people on the spot. But once again, Moses, Moses, bold Moses, courageous, humble, merciful Moses intercedes, and once more God relents. But in verse 21, he declares, Though I will relent, though I will forgive them and not give them what they deserve right here, right now, he says this, verse 21, Nevertheless, as surely as I live, And as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times over, not one of them will ever see the land I promised an oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. And as for the ten spies, verse 37 tells us this. These men who were responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. This is deadly serious. Treating the Lord with contempt. Treating his promises as though they were nothing. And here we see that in the face of of what God has called them to, and their rejection of his word and his promises, their refusal to move forward in action. Well, here their inaction, dressed up in the guise of prudence and realism, was actually contempt and rebellion against the Lord, 
And this is exactly how the Lord deals with them. You see, my friends, real faith results in real action. And the kind of action God's word talks about is much more than just sitting down on a church pew on Sunday morning. Now, don't get me wrong. Church and your pew is important, of course. But if that's it, if that's all our faith does, what about living out what we learn on that church pew the other days of the week? Isn't that what this is all about? We're not just here to gather knowledge so that we can come back next Sunday and say, hey, I can add to that knowledge. No, we're, we're gaining knowledge from God's word so that we can go out and put this into action in our lives practically every single day. You see, my friends, real faith must shape and influence every aspect of our lives every day. And that means we will live out our faith in real and tangible action knowing that God will do the impossible when we are obedient to act on what God is telling us to do. A man named Leon Evans tells about the time he went to the mission field in Africa, and he visited a medical missionary there who was about to perform a complicated surgery. Now, in that third world country, this particularly difficult and specialized type of operation was normally impossible for anyone to receive there. And this little girl was simply doomed to endure a slow and painful death. But this particular missionary doctor was no general medical practitioner. He was, in fact, a world-class surgeon. And he had left behind his practice in the United States to go and help some of the neediest people in the world who had no other hope. And the doctor invited Leon to come into the operating room and observe this major surgery. And so he agreed, and he walked into the operating room. And immediately he was confronted with the oppressive nature of the surroundings. No air conditioning, it was hot and humid. And the lighting was dim, and the equipment was antiquated. And because of that, this very delicate surgery took much longer than normal. Hour after hour, the doctor painstakingly worked away. And finally, concluding the operation, hours later, the doctor was exhausted. And he finally came out of the lengthy procedure, worn out, and he collapsed onto the ground. And sitting there beside him on the ground, the operation over, successful. The little girl was stable. Leon sat down beside him and asked a question. How much money would you have received to perform that single surgery in the United States? And the doctor laughed. Thousands. Thousands of dollars, I guess. And Leon then asked him, how much will you get paid for it here? (laughs) The doctor laughed again, thought for a moment. Here I will receive the smile of my patient. Then he paused a beat longer and added, and most importantly, the approval of my master. It took a lot of courage for that doctor to leave behind a lucrative practice, thousands of dollars, state-of-the-art medical facilities, and the prestige that he received as a top surgeon in the United States. But when God gave him a different course of action for his life, he put his faith into action. And the question must then be asked, what would have happened had he not acted upon God's call on his life? What would have, what would have the consequence been? 
And while we don't know exactly, but one thing that Leon Evans knew for certain was had he not acted, that little girl would have been doomed to die a slow and painful death without him. And she was only one of the hundreds of operations that he performed for those who had no other help otherwise. Now, my friends, God may not be calling you to be a missionary doctor in Africa or elsewhere. But he is calling you with the skills and abilities he's given you. He is calling you to put your faith into action. Somehow, some way, right where he has placed you today, at this moment in history. Because you see, one of the fatal flaws of our sinful nature is that it always tries to rationalize and justify disobedience to God and then attempts to downplay the consequences as though they're nothing. But the fact is that we may never know just how far-reaching the ripple effect of our failure to act may actually travel. Because for Israel, their failure to act on what God had called them to was absolutely catastrophic. The entire adult generation who had victoriously escaped Egypt in the Exodus, who had marched through the Red Sea on dry land, were now doomed to a 40-year funeral march in the wilderness because of their rebellion against God. It's a sobering story, and it stands as a warning to us. My friends and fellow believers here today, how is the Lord asking you and us together to exercise our faith through action today and tomorrow and this week and this year? Yes, it will require courage. So if you feel afraid, if you're feeling more like a little grasshopper than a giant slayer right now, that's okay. Look above the giants to God. Ask Him for courage. Set your sights on Him. Believe that He will provide according to His promises. And then act according to your faith rather than your fear. And then let's see what God will do. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word gives us the full picture. You don't sugarcoat anything. You give us the good, the bad, and the ugly. You show us the blessings of obedience, and you show us the consequences of rebellion. And so, Father, I pray that we as a church and we as individuals would not be people like those ten spies who only saw the obstacles and held back in fear, but that instead, Lord, we would be like Joshua, we would be like Caleb, that we would remember your promises, that we would claim them as our own and look above our obstacles to you and move ahead in faith, knowing that you will grant us the victory. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church family and each one individually, that whatever you are calling us to, Lord, individually and collectively, that we will not shrink back, but instead move forward in faith, knowing, Lord, that our victory through Jesus Christ is already assured for us, and that one day we will be with you in glory forever. And so bless us, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.